to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we are talking about how CPR actually works with a cardiologist and family matters, well, of the royal kind. But are they or aren't they just the typical family stuff? Also going to be talking about the fountain of youth, and I mean fountain, the water fountain that is, which is what you will need more of if you don't want to give this up in January. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. now, Maureen's Health Headline. I'm sure you've heard about it one day ahead of its release, Prince Harry's new book, Spare or is it Spare Me? He stepped away from royal life. Who does that? He lost his mother at a young age, felt betrayed by the king and heir, and seems to have been shunned by his family at large, although that's not what the British press has reported. The British press seems to be unscrupulously intertwined with one royal palace and its inhabitants and is at the carry-on of this hard-to-believe royal story. The headline, Blame the Wife. Harry has suffered a princely kind of loss, grief, and trauma, but that seems to get lost when we learn that he garnered $100 million from a recent Netflix documentary series. It's confusing for those of us who have not been brought up with a silver spoon in our mouths. Without his wife at his side, which is unusual... On his little media tour, Harry is now being interviewed on high-profile shows in the, in the UK and also in the US, like 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper. He seems rather confident as he describes situations much like most families experience. Sibling rivalry, bad parenting, grief, divorce, in-law troubles, second marriages, inheritances, and family estrangement. But why air the royal mantles and can this family be saved? In other words, will they ever be able to reconcile? Can they work this out? To answer this question, I've invited none other than Mark Smith, who is a family therapist, divorce coach, and parenting coordinator, to join me back on the program tonight. Good evening, Mark. Hey, Maureen. Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, It certainly is. And and I think... Yeah, no problem. I think it's actually uh, very confusing for a lot of people. A lot of people might just automatically say, you know, what a spoiled brat. Um, But if you've been following it, you can actually garner some of the nuances in there and some of the troubles that, you know, have compounded the original hurt and the original trauma that Harry suffered, which, of course, is the loss of his mother and the inability to cry. and, And at the age of 12, not understanding a lot of it, and also hoping that she would come back, which I think if anyone, if you've ever lost somebody at a young age, you understand that feeling, hoping and praying that that person will come back. And it wasn't until he was an adult that he learned that she wouldn't be coming back. So, but the biggest thing here, Mark, is what I'd like to talk to you about is how damaging is all of what Harry and Megan have done in terms of airing their grievances, telling some of the real stories in according to them allegedly that go on behind the palace walls and and do you think that they can ever work these issues out because when you get right down to it these issues aren't the worst things and they're not issues that every other family hasn't experienced they happen to just be royal troubles exactly and i think that that's uh, i think one of the important lessons to learn is that uh, these kind of family Dynamics happen in all families, albeit this is a very high-profile family. And every time 
uh, something goes sideways, um, it ends up in the press and or the press reads into the situation in such a way as to create undue pressure on this family. You know, imagine every move that you make within your family being um, under the microscope and then uh, communicated to the community around you. Um, oh, the most boring yeah. read ever, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we well, would certainly but, not have the royal troubles by any stretch of but, the imagination. <laughs> but when the neighbors um, start gossiping about what's going on in your household, and then the neighborhood, <laughs> you know, polarizes around who's the right, you know, who's the right one and who's the wrong one, then I think you can appreciate in a small way some of the pressure that this family's under. You know, absolutely. I can't tell you how many times people have stopped by and I have been in, you know, less than <laughs> attractive um, <laughs> passion, <laughs> shall yeah. I say. And I just, and I, if, um, you know, I answer the door, friend comes in, I, I often will say, please don't tell the listeners <laughs> that you saw me in this outfit. <laughs> um, because we exactly. have this idea that people live in a certain way. But but at the end of the day, we're also similar in, in so many different ways, regardless of the amount of money or the amount of prestige or, um, right. you know, the experiences that we've had. At the end of the day, we're all human beings. And, and I just want to get down to, I know it must be terribly hurtful for the royal family that yeah. Harry has come out and Meghan have come out and told and shared these stories because what family wants their laundry aired? You know, very few, and and right. everyone has troubles, but they like to keep them within within the family, and they like to work them out within the family. But this has changed things so mm-hmm. much. So, but but when you think about it, the troubles really aren't that bad. It, you know, there has been some alleged betrayal, um, some mm-hmm. leaks from different offices of different princes right. and kings and, and queen consorts and that sort of thing. Um, right. And, you know, for their perhaps potentially, you know, to benefit them. Um, but at the end of the day, sibling rivalry, two brothers having a physical altercation, um, you know, two sisters-in-law not getting along. I, I read where Megan had asked Kate Middleton if she could use her lip gloss just before going on, you know, a television premiere. And I guess Kate grimaced. And to be honest with you, I'd grimace too. I really don't want to, I really don't want to share my lip gloss with, with anybody. But by the same token, I guess she had made a comment about Kate's baby brain. Um, and Kate was highly offended at that mm-hmm. with saying, you know, don't comment. We don't know you well enough for you to comment on my hormones. Well, I mean, it's, that's a kind of girl talk. So, you know, this is not unusual. It is shrouded in racism and there have been allegations of racism so mm-hmm. i mean this is very complex but can they work these issues out well i think that the good news is is that harry's been working at uh, being in con from the sounds of it um you know he said he's worked at it for six years uh, sending letters trying to talk person to person with various family members and i think that's the good news it is taking it, it is a long game you know these things do not get resolved in the short run. And so I think that he's been making the effort over these number of years. I don't know what happened that made him think that uh, writing this memoir and doing the Oprah uh, interview and the Netflix documentary, uh, how we thought that would be helpful. Because as I was thinking about it, it was, it's sort of akin to the, um, the family member that wants to confront parents around grievances. 
or have some sort of a, a confrontation around particular issues that tends to not go very well. And this is sort of a version of that. Um, and I'm not sure whether blowing it up like this kind of clears the decks or whether it creates more problem, especially given the royal family as opposed to perhaps other families. Um, exactly. I don't think any other family would have liked to have had their um, laundry aired. And, right. you know, nobody likes to be told that they've done something wrong or that they've been wrong or when they've made mistakes, they really don't mm. want those publicized, you know, like the right. altercation that um, William and Harry had. And it sounds like, according to Harry, William allegedly, you know, physically attacked him. So mm -hmm. Harry, who's the I mean, William, sorry, who's the heir to the throne, you know, that doesn't actually show him in a good light at all. And so he didn't want Harry to tell his wife, let alone, but somehow he did, <laughs> um, because apparently Meghan yeah. saw the scar, or the blood on his back or whatever. He could have made yeah. up another story. So he didn't want that shared. But, you know, the saddest thing here is that it, this leads to family estrangement, which is what we're seeing right now. Is that right? Well, it, it, if, if not estrangement, I guess it potentially could lead to family cutoff where people do not have contact with family members for extended periods of time, sometimes for years. We certainly probably all know families where family members haven't talked for three years, five years, ten years. Um, and while there was in the um, Anderson Cooper interview on 60 Minutes tonight, there was talk about how he hasn't had contact with his father for some time, uh, King Charles as well as not very much contact with his brother, I, he, he, he certainly took a stance of being very conciliatory and very level-headed in terms of um, his desire for there to be relationship with his brother and with his father. He said, at the heart of it, there's a family without question, and I look forward to having that family element back. So he's sending the right messages in terms of a desire to maintain family relationships. Um, but I think that, you know, it remains to be seen what kind of damage this will do, if any. I mean, you know, who, who knows? It could clear the decks. But people tend to polarize around these kind of disclosures about family secrets and family um, events. My guest is Mark Smith, family therapist, divorce coach and parenting coordinator. Uh, Mark, you're in Richmond, British Columbia. Is that right? I am. Yes. Thank you. And, and how can people get in touch with you if they need some help with their divorce or their family uh, or parenting? Okay. <laughs> uh, my <laughs> divorce work uh, uh, would be a collaborative divorce coaching dot com or my counseling website uh, marksmithcounseling dot ca. Um, yeah. Perfect. I hope I the mean, royal family is listening right now because <laughs> I <laughs> I want to talk to you about. <laughs> I thought I'd invite Harry on. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, um, as the weeks go on, he might <laughs> want to join the program <laughs> of the sex therapist. Anyway, um, uh, so what does this family need to do to heal? We're talking about Prince Harry, his new book, the interviews, the Netflix documentary. Mm -hmm. A lot of people feel, how do you feel about this out there in Canada? Um, the number to call one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. That's one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Do you think Harry is just a little spoiled, bit of a prince? Uh, do you think this is all about the money? Do you actually think that this is legit and that he's genuine? 
what's what's your sense about Harry and Meghan and all of the royal mantles that they have been airing all over the media these days? Um, the the bottom line is, can they work this out? And and how could a family? And and you know what? To be honest with you, a lot of families might might go through this where mm-hmm. their secrets, their issues are known publicly. Politicians, uh, actors, mm-hmm. actresses people in high profile positions, how could these, how could this family or any family like that begin to work this out? You, as you said, Harry gave a bit of an olive branch there, but you know, it's, it's got to be a rather large olive branch after he, after he has aired all that he has aired. And and on some level, Mm -hmm. I understand that he needed to put truth to power and he needed to express himself. And, and, you know, when people are saying things about you that are not true, it's hard not to defend yourself. And, and I think yeah. in a lot of ways he's done that. No, I think that he is working at trying to define his own narrative, his, only, his own story as a person within, within this family. And that's very important, especially when the British press is uh, uh, characterizing him one way and perhaps family members another way. And so his efforts to define himself um, you know, I think that's really important. The, my question would be, how much of that is he doing for himself, for his own sake, to be defining who he is within his family, and how much of it is to appease Megan? Um, uh-huh. And you know, in and in that case, is it like out of the frying pan and into the fire, in the sense that his efforts to um, call the royal family to account is to uh, make his wife happy? because she's unhappy with the way she's been treated. And so he's stuck between a rock and a hard place because he doesn't want to lose his wife, but he also doesn't want to lose the family. So he's caught in the uh-huh. middle of this kind of emotional triangle. Um, uh-huh. uh, and uh, every family, I mean, like you said, every family has family secrets. Um, this, Even though it's a royal family, a lot of the same uh, um, events that happen in many families, death of a parent, substance used to deal with grief, divorce, um, affairs, the Camilla's the third person in the marriage, um, sibling rivalry, birth order on a royal level. Um, Absolutely. I have to give Harry a little bit of credit here, though. You know, I I talked about family estrangement, and I quite honestly think that they're on their way. If they're not there already, it's been a long time since he's months since he's spoken to his father or brother since they've spoken to him. Um, But I have to give him a bit of credit for standing up. You know, a lot of family estrangement, most family estrangement occurs when a son marries a wife. And um, the wife is the cause of the family estrangement, says, you know, you haven't been treated, almost some type of brainwashing. And a lot of those men don't stand up and say, look, this is my family and we're going to have to work this out. And I'm okay with, you know, my childhood or I'll get get my the type of treatment. So on that level, I feel at least Harry is not saying we've cut them off forever. He's opened the door for them mm. you know mm-hmm. i mean this is this is very complex and unfortunately we yeah. don't have any time left mark <laughs> i know i know i really appreciate you coming on uh, give me your websites again uh, marksmithcounseling.ca and collaborativedivorcecoaching.com fantastic thank you so thank much you. really appreciate your time mark happy new year bye now if you were watching the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals last Monday night, you likely 
your heart may be stopped when you witnessed Damar Hamlin going down after being hit head-on or chest-on directly. He suffered a cardiac arrest during that game and was immediately given cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, and was hooked up to a defibrillator. He was resuscitated on the field. He went to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, and he was allegedly, although um, there's mixed reports that he was resuscitated a second time, but he was put on a ventilator. He's off the ventilator. Now there was lots of talk about commotio cordis as being the issue. And so once again, we are confused with the reports. <laughs> so I have invited none other than the esteemed cardiologist, Dr. John Weisler in North, of North Vancouver, from North Vancouver, British Columbia, who practices medicine at Lionsgate Hospital and also practices medicine for the athletes. Good evening, Dr. Weisler. Good evening, Marie. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Thank you for having me on the show again. Thank you so much for joining me. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, it was shocking if for anybody who was watching um, this game, uh, the Bills and the Bengals. Were you watching it by any chance? Uh, I was not, although um, I was listening to it on the radio and uh, certainly uh, pretty shocked by what happened. As you know, I was listening when the incident happened. Absolutely. Um, the thing is, the one thing here that I think we've learned is that CPR works, which is awesome to to know that, to see that, um, that that was initiated fairly immediately and, and was effective in spite of the fact that he went on a ventilator. Um, but first and foremost, let's step it back. He got hit in the chest at, at just the right time, or shall we say the wrong time. What happens when somebody, whether it's a football player or a kid sitting at the table who's annoying his parents, gets, which is a case that I know of, um, gets hit in the chest? What can happen potentially? Yeah, and and you know, I, of course, we should preface this. You know, I would say that um, I don't know any more like specifics about Jamar Havlin's case than anyone else. I work in cardiology and athletics, and you know, it's suspicious for commotion cordis, but you certainly have to be thorough and rule out you know anything else, which I'm sure uh, his doctors are doing. So this this um, this uh, disease, commotion cordis, or this this type of trauma. It happens, you know, our, our heart, um, Marine, it's a pump, as we all know, and then the pump has an electrical signal in it. There's, you know, those of you, you've all seen, like on TV, the, the spikes uh, when your heart beats. And so there's several mm-hmm. spikes, and there's a big spike when your heart squeezes, and then there's a spike a few moments later, we call it the T-wave, when your heart returns back to normal. And so the idea is that the impact in the chest, if it hits at the wrong time in the cardiac electrical cycle, it's um, a specific area on that T wave, um, it can make the heart go to rhythm. So the, the T wave reflects the heart trying to reset itself after it's contracted. And so for part of that, the, the heart is very susceptible to disruption. So the commotion cortis, it's a, a condition where there's a specific impact on the heart. It's not too much force. There's a certain like measure of force that can cause it more force and you actually injure the heart muscle, damage the heart, cause internal bleeding, cause other things. So it's just enough force. It doesn't cause um, visible injury, but it disturbs the heart's electrical signal and it makes it beat dangerously fast. So it's a a rhythm called ventricular rhythm or ventricular fibrillation, which is fatal if not treated. So it's the wrong impact at the wrong time. 
Right. And so that electrical pattern that you talk about, that's that PQRST uh, of normal sinus rhythm that we see, you know, many people have seen it on TV at a bedside of somebody whose heart is being monitored. Exactly. So the, the QRS is the big spike, which is where your heart contracts. And then the T wave is your heart muscle relaxing. And so it's a hit at just the wrong time between the QRS and the peak of that T wave um, that can um, make your heart go to rhythm. And, and it's, it's I, we, we called it, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, it's thought to be very rare. It's thought to, to cause, uh, thought to be about 10 to 20, you know, uh, cases per year across all of North America. So it's not common, but not impossible either. And it's, it's most mm-hmm. likely in sports where you have a, like a hard projectile, like a hockey puck or a baseball. So it's a little bit unusual to see it from football, although it, you know, has been described. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's so rare, and yet I have actually uh, – first question I had for you is, is it also known as Q on T? Is that the – Yep. Yep, yes. or R, okay. R on T. Yes, exactly. Yep. The same, it's the yes. same thing. The idea that you get some other sort of electrical impulse um, on the wrong part of the T wave that makes the heart go to rhythm. Yeah, it's the same mechanism, exactly. Right. So I had a patient who had that. I, I've changed the story a little bit so that to, for anonymity – um, privacy and confidentiality, but let's just say that um, he was acting up and one of the parents, um, you know, kind of just banged him in the chest, you know, like knock it off kind of a thing and actually did experience this commotio cordis. I didn't realize it was as rare as you have just educated us on. Um, so Damar Hamlin is, I mean, he sounds like a wonderful guy. And but he's also now probably the luckiest man alive. I think so many people were traumatized by that and also maybe didn't expect him to survive that. Mm -hmm. The the point you made at the beginning, you know, uh, was absolutely uh, true. The beginning of the segment where you mentioned he received very prompt, you know, CPR and defibrillation. Very impressive job by the trainer that ran onto the field because, you know, the vast majority of the time when an athlete falls over, it's some sort of, you know, musculoskeletal injury or strain or something. And, you know, um, the, the most important thing in people surviving a cardiac arrest is a, you know, quick access to CPR and then defibrillation, which fortunately uh, Demar, you know, did did have, and that that makes the biggest difference. And those tragedies, like the story you mentioned, uh, play fighting at home, um, thump in the chest. That does that again, rare, but it can happen where you know an injury to the chest at home can um, put your heart in rhythm. And again, um, a lot of people at home not expecting to do CPR, maybe they're not trained, and then they don't know how to proceed. And that can make all the difference when something like this does happen. Mm-hmm. Or, or they're trained and they haven't utilized it. And then, you know, a year has gone by or two years have gone mm-hmm. by and they're afraid, they're nervous, they don't understand, mm-hmm. you know, they don't remember or they think they're going to harm somebody, but it's actually pretty simple, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's that quick action that, that has to be taken. Um, and I actually posted for those who follow me on Instagram, um, on my story and also as a post today, I posted something from CNN explaining about CPR and, you know, how not to be afraid and how simple it is. And you don't even actually have to give the quick breaths, um, but it's very important that you depress the chest by about two inches and start singing the song Staying Alive, John Travolta, um, and and just start exactly. giving compressions to the chest. And, and that 
can help to save somebody's life. Would, would you agree there, Dr. Weisler? That's a hundred percent. And the, 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 you know, singing the rhythm in your head makes you um, do enough um, compressions fast enough that you keep a column of blood circulating around the body and help protect the other organs from, you know, the lack of output that they're, they're getting because the heart's not working. So that's, that's exactly right. It's uh, it's the simple of hands only CPR is very simple and works very well with outcomes you know, about as good as the more traditional CPR where you give breathing too. So hands-free, you can do with anybody. It's uh, a nice option if you're worried about, like, getting an infection from a bystander, you know, with COVID and all of that. Um, and it can, you know, it can save somebody's life. So it's, a, it's a, you know, not a difficult skill to learn. And I, I encourage everybody to make sure they know how to do it. Hopefully they never need it, of course, but it's, it's a great skill to have just in case. We are talking all things cardiology, and joining me on the line is Dr. John Weisler. There's just so much to say about this esteemed cardiologist. He's, amongst other things, like um, being on staff at Lionsgate Hospital. He's a sports cardiologist, providing consultations and screening for the Vancouver Whitecaps, BC Lions, Vancouver Canucks, multiple Olympic teams, and other professional and high-level athletes. He's a member of the Sports and Exercise Executive of the American College of Cardiology. He's a regular public speaker. He's an author, UBC clinical instructor, advocate, and medical co-lead for the use of telehealth to serve patients in geographically remote areas, a site leader, principal investigator from multiple clinical trials, leads a research nurse program. He's involved in multiple trials, exploring treatments to reduce inflammation in patients with coronary disease. I mean, I could go on and on, but we don't have enough time to do that. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Weisler. Oh, you're very kind, Maureen. Thank you for having me. It's uh, my pleasure. Oh, my gosh. I was talking, I said this to you in my, when I texted you, I was talking to some nurses who didn't know that I knew you and, and uh, they were just singing your praises and saying how supportive you are of nurses and how you have so much interest in continuous quality improvement. And I really appreciate you coming on uh, the show to educate people uh, about uh, heart disease and heart function and heart health. And it's just, I, I, I am so appreciative of your dedication um, getting back to our, our subject and, and what we witnessed last week on um, the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals game, the DeMar Hamlin, um, who basically suffered a cardiac arrest and was resuscitated and provided with AED or defibrillator. He was defibrillated. So can you tell the listeners exactly what that is, please? Yep. So defibrillation is a shock that um, we apply to the heart. So uh, you put pads on the chest, uh, front and back or front and side, and uh, then it's connected to a machine. So that allows an electrical current to pass through one pad, through the heart muscle, and then to the other pad. And so in doing so, uh, the heart cells are all electrically active. So the idea is that the shock um, resynchronizes them so they're all in the same phase. They're kind of like if you imagine each cell in your heart is electrically active, it has like an on and an off switch. So the idea with defibrillation is we put all the switches back to off and then we hope that the heart's normal impulse generator at the top of our heart called the sinus node that it will restart and retake control of the heartbeat so what what happens in cardiac arrest the most common way and you know if, if damar hamlin turns out he did have commotion cordis uh, what happens is that you get um it's a rhythm called ventricular fibrillation so your heart isn't squeezing effectively but actually what happens at the electrical level is that individual heart cells are all electrically extremely active. They're firing at about 300 beats a minute. 
Um, and so they move, they, they do this all like independently. They're not working together. So they work, the heart cells are electrically fluctuating extremely fast and the heart can't produce an effective contraction. So the defibrillation tries to reset all the electrical cells. So they're in like the same phase, if you will. And then the normal heartbeat can resume. And with that, the pumping act of the heart can, can restart. And man, that uh, Buffalo Bills trainer, Denny Kellington, really has to be credited with saving DeMar Hamlin's life. He understood what potentially was going on there between CPR and the AED, which is something else with the defibrillation. Something else um, that people might be afraid of is to actually use a defibrillator. I mean, they're on ships and planes and on football fields and, you know, in in hospitals and, you know, they should be everywhere. Uh, But somebody might be nervous to use them, but they're pretty simple too. Yep, they, they certainly are, and that's um, you know, it's it's um, it, people should be um, willing to grab them and apply them to somebody if they see someone who's down and unresponsive. You know, the, the trainers um, are taught to check for a pulse if the player is not responsive, and presumably that's what uh, the Bills trainer did because he recognized it quickly. So you identify that the person has no pulse, you call for assistance, you call 911, um, and then you can start CPR and you want to look for an AED as well. So they're very simple to use. I re- like a lot of first aid courses will show you how to use them and they're quite straightforward. You, it's, it comes in like a, a case that you open and the, you know, the battery and all the hardware is inside. And then it's got very clear diagrams because it's an emergency and, you know, you're going to be nervous when you apply it, you know, and so it's, the instructions are very clear. Basically you turn it on and apply the pads to the person's chest and there's a diagram to show you where to place them. And then it will do the rest. You Sometimes you have to press a button, but then it guides you via, via a, boi- a voice prompt. So it will tell you to step back for a moment. So you stop CPR for a moment and step back from the patient. And then it will uh, say analyzing, and then it will look at the person's rhythm. And so it will look to see if the person's in uh, some type of rhythm that it can shock, so ventricular fibrillation or tachycardia. Or if there's, you can, you can have your heart stop in other ways where your heart doesn't go really fast. There you don't want to shock. So it will analyze the rhythm for you. It will say analyzing, and then it will say shock advised, and it will go ahead and shock the person. Or it will say no shock, continue CPR. So it gives you very clear instructions uh, as to how to proceed. So it's certainly some, if you have somebody who's unconscious, not responsive, don't be afraid to use it. It's very easy to use. You can't shock yourself. Um, and and it's, it's very easy. It walks you through each step. And it speaks to you. A lot of them speak to you. Yeah, many of them speak. Some of them also have diagrams or words on a screen, but most of them speak mm-hmm. because, and it's you know, it's usually audible because again, it's a it's an emergency. The designers recognize people may not be that comfortable and may be very nervous, you know. So it it uh, really tries to make it very easy to follow and step, and, and go step by step. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to say, um, you know, nurses and doctors and in hospitals are performing CPR, you know, fairly often. Um, much more regularly than perhaps the public realizes. And, you know, I was struck by the fact that the the players, and of course they were traumatized, you know, but, but it was reported in the media that they were traumatized by watching him being given CPR. Perhaps they knew that his heart had stopped and, and that was maybe the trauma, but, but a bit of a shout out to the doctors and nurses in hospitals who who go from one emergency potentially to the next uh, without having any time for reflection or, um, you know, to 
grieve or to think about what they have just gone through. I mean, I, I myself have, you know, worked on some very, you know, tragic and sad and hard resuscitations um, and, and nurses do that. So it was, I just thought it was interesting that the public had that view and, and had that reaction. What did you think about that? Yeah, no, another, another great, great point. It's very, um, very, it can be very traumatizing to see, you know, and, and in the, um, in the emergency, especially for medical professionals, but you know, anybody that's going to try to help, you can usually push those thoughts aside and you just like, for us, we drop back on our training. You know, I, I'm not part of the code response team where I work anymore. That's led by our emergency doctors uh, after hours and things like that but I still get involved sometimes um, you know with with resuscitations and you know you you panic for a moment yourself as the doctor or nurse but then your training kicks in and so okay. you, you focus at the time on getting through the the situation hopefully reviving the patient and you know supporting them but then it's important to try and debrief afterwards because it takes a, a huge toll and anybody who's involved as a bystander once the situation is done it's always important to sort of take stock of where you're feeling and you may potentially need some help or to talk to somebody or some therapy because it is a very distressing, you know, adrenaline fueled thing to, to be involved with for sure. It, it certainly is. Agree with, yeah, to, totally agree with what you said about how impressive it is, you know, the emergency doctors and nurses and, you know, respiratory therapists, other staff that go from emergency to emergency and they, that's their whole day, their whole shift, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a draining, draining work for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly is. And the pandemic has really put an additional strain on our healthcare uh, providers. Um, without commenting, and specifically, I know you are not taking care of him, although he'd get great care, but um, holding out good hope for Damar Hamlin, and we don't have yeah. too much time left. <laughs> I, I hope so. I mean, it, it sounds like he's improving. He's, you know, talking today, which is great. So I'm hopeful that he's going to make a, a full recovery and get back on his feet. You know, his doctors and staff are going to do a very careful job to support him and look for anything else that he might have had, you know, that could have precipitated this. Um, it does sound like commotion cortis, but we don't know until you do an exhaustive search. And all these players are screened for heart problems. The screening is good, but it can't catch everything. So important to have, you know, people that know CPR. But I think I, I'm crossing my fingers. I hope he's going to make a really good recovery. I think I, I cautiously you. say yes. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Weisler. Appreciate it. We will get you back again, probably in Heart Month. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks so much for joining me in this uh, new year, 2023. Coming up on this hour, we've got lots to talk about. We're going to be talking about uh, dry or damp January. Is it dry or is it damp? Also, a, a new hopeful medication for Alzheimer's disease and the benefits of water as well. And I'm going to be talking with a a professional who shares her personal and professional experience to educate women about pelvic floor dysfunction. And we're going to be talking tonight about vaginal health. She is the vagina coach. So you'll want to stay on here for that. And also going to be talking about the, the airline industry has had a lot of trouble uh, these, this past while. Um, you know, some of us are shaking our heads. They've been giving billions in bailouts yet uh, can't seem to find staff or maybe can't afford 
staff to actually unload the planes. People are losing lots of their luggage. Well, something new has just come out, a new study, um, which shows that the Mile High Club has a whole new virus. And I'm going to be talking about that in this hour as well. But right now, joining me on the line is none other than Dr. Tomi Mitchell. She's a medical doctor, deals with wellness and performance. She empowers people to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace. She's all, all about leverage-based leadership. She's a speaker, trainer, and writer, and she's on the line. Good good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, and Happy New Year. It's good to be back. Thank you so much. Yes, it's great to have you back. Nice to uh, start out the new year with all of these new studies and new lots of health information, and hopefully people are getting informed and and maybe taking that next step to improve their health. So one of the things that's been all over the the headlines and the news, and it happens every January, is this dry January. Uh, what, what seems to be, you know, a season of uh, imbibing and office parties, and we, we may have gone back to the office party this year, the in-person office party. Um, and a lot of people have increased their consumption of alcohol during the pandemic as well. Um, but many people during the month of January stop drinking alcohol. So that's the dry January. But then I've also heard about the damp January. I don't know if you know about the damp January, but that's people who don't drink during the week, during the work week, they just drink on weekends. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. You know, an excuse for anything. Um, but let's talk a little bit about dry January and why is that important? Well, it is society's soft way of saying without obviously saying is that they know there's an alcohol problem. There's over people are drinking too much. So this is kind of the way of saying, Hey, let's boot, let's start the year fresh. Let's do something different. Let's see if there is a problem because if you can't go 30 days without alcohol, you might need to reevaluate your relationship with alcohol. So that's, where I really think it came from. It's it's like an initiative that's been around for, I guess, a decade now, but it's in par with New Year's resolutions and trying to make healthier choices for the year. Which a lot of people struggle with. They they can't even make that 31 days. And, and this is a public health initiative. It was launched in 2013 by Alcohol Change UK. And, and so this idea is to fully remove alcohol from your diet for 30 one days and and is it just for people who are concerned that they drink too much or too often or just want to slow things down or or is it for people as well who just want to start off the year fresh and is it too much pressure in addition to those resolutions that people may make oh i think it's for it's for anyone who wants to start the new year fresh and as far as pressure well let's just face it by week six most people have dropped their resolutions anyway so is it going to make a huge impact in that I don't know, but you know what? It's the intention, the positive intentions are there, so I will roll with it. So it is for anyone. Uh-huh. Anyone can have their dry January, and then maybe push it to February too. You never know. So yeah, exactly. And some may never pick it up again. But um, even a brief break from alcohol, according to research, can be beneficial for moderate to heavy drinkers. What are some of those benefits, Doctor Mitchell? Oh, there's so many. Pretty much alcohol is linked to pretty much every negative thing out there. So cancers like breast, esophagus, liver, throat, mouth, 
um, liver disease, like cirrhosis, um, diabetes, obesity, like everything, you name it, heart failure, alcohol increases risks. So there is benefit to reduce your consumption. There's significant benefit. And and so on that sort of day-to-day thing, because I, I can hear a lot of people saying, well, I don't have esophagitis and, and I don't have head and neck cancers and I don't have breast cancer. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that, that close relationship. And, and of course, alcohol affects women quite differently than it does men. Um, but you know, they don't realize the connection between alcohol and, and a lot of the cancers, in particular breast cancer. But just yeah. on the day-to-day, if people want to lose weight, this could be a beneficial, um, it could be beneficial for them to stop drinking alcohol. Yes, definitely. Even when for we that talk month, about... they can, yeah, Exactly. We talk about beer bellies, and that name didn't come from nowhere. It's like, what happens when you drink a lot of alcohol? Well, you get a little bit of extra visceral fat, not pudge your tummy right so yeah uh-huh. it could definitely help you lose those stubborn inches and i've seen patients who literally have lost weight by just quitting drinking or drinking soda uh-huh. but right yeah, absolutely and you know there's a lot of um mocktails that are that are coming out um blake lively for example an actress married to ryan reynolds you know canadian's favorite canada's favorite son um mm-hmm. it you know is has come out with sort of a, a line of mocktails uh, because she doesn't drink because it doesn't agree with her which also leads me to remind people that if you give up alcohol you may have you may feel better the next day after a party you may have um better exercise um these are some of the things i've heard from my patients that they that they're yeah. getting more from their workouts they're sleeping yeah. better um, and you know, they're, they're having fewer empty calories as well, in addition to, to drinking. And, and as you mentioned, the growth factors, the decreasing the growth factors that are related to cancer and insulin resistance and, and blood pressure, and, and also a reduction in liver fat and blood sugar. So this can be a, a great way to start, um, January. What do you think of the damp January? <laughs> I think that you're laughing gave it all away. <laughs> I think society finds a name for everything. I just say, you know what? If you haven't to dance around with the name, you probably think there is probably a problem or concern. So have that talk with people that care about you, care providers, and have a plan to dry things up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, something else that's in the news that's welcome news for a lot of people is that the um, especially the Alzheimer's Association or those people suffering with Alzheimer's and mm-hmm. or their families or caregiver, caregivers, yeah. the U.S. FDA has approved a new medication for Alzheimer's. What is that medication mm-hmm. and what do you think of that? Huh. I think it's, it's Lecambi. It's a um, Medication that's used for mild stages of Alzheimer's, which has to be confirmed with an MRI with certain plaques in certain part of the brain. I think it's good. Definitely it's going to give them improved quality of life for, they're talking about months. And when you're talking about a disease that can ravage somebody in years, a month is a long amount, of, is a significant. The downside is um, those who are under like Medicare, Medicaid, are not going to get coverage. I guess the people in charge of the pockets were like, nope, we're not covering this one because I have my own thoughts yeah. about this just because it's such a common illness. And at the end of the day, I think it's a dollars thing. I truly do. When I saw this, I'm like, this is pure dollars. This is because this drug, whenever you're talking about this class of drugs, I know it's expense. It's cha-ching. And at the end of the day, that's 
that's where they're making their decision based on dollars. Do you think this will be available in Canada? Well, which has we're a usually, model? yeah, we're usually a little behind. Um, I, because our system is publicly funded, I think we're also going to have that dollar challenge too, because I think Alzheimer's is like the top number eight cause of death. So a lot of people suffer from this condition. So the government is like, we're going to pay for this drug that costs potentially, I'm guessing a hundred thousand dollars a year. I haven't actually looked at the numbers yet. Are they going to be able to do that? That's the honest uh-huh. and good truth. Cause we've seen all these drugs for rare diseases and, you know, the million dollar price point and, Families trying to crowdfund to pay for this. But even if this is a lower price point, is our government going to say yes? Well, different provinces cover medications differently for people. But this treatment can change the course of Alzheimer's in a meaningful way for people in the early stages of the disease. And that's also, you know, that might raise awareness a little bit about diagnosing Alzheimer's earlier. And that would, you know, um, turn into more time to participate in daily life and live independently, which which ultimately yeah. does cost less for the government. Sometimes they don't realize that. Oftentimes they don't realize that. Yeah. But this is hopeful. Would you say this is, is very hopeful. hopeful? It is, because and we haven't had much beginning. of this disease. Like, right. seriously, Alzheimer's is one of those diseases where my heart sinks. We ha- really mm-hmm. don't have much in our pocket. So this is, this is the beginning. This is promising. That's really right, because the, the FDA accelerated this approval pathway, and, and that means that it grants earlier approval to drugs that yeah. treat serious conditions and, and fill an unmet medical need. Um, you know, the thing is, is that there, are, there is so much that people can do to prevent dementia, cognitive yes. decline, Alzheimer's, so many conservative measures like yes. you know, physical exercise cutting out alcohol or at least reduction of alcohol, which is very bad for the brain. Um, You know, learning is, you know, being a continuous lifelong learner, your cognitive function. And so, you know, on one hand, I hate to rely on meds, but then on the other hand, you know, some people are going to get it in spite of doing all of that. And and so this provides a little bit of hope and maybe a launch pad for other drugs to come down the pipeline, much like the immunotherapy and the different treatments for something like stage four kidney cancer, which, you know, two years ago was a death sentence, no longer is a death sentence today. Yes. And also another thing is the blood pressure, right? This whole sodium salt, keeping that blood pressure nice in the low teens, not the 120s or 30s, it's actually the low teens, which significantly Uh reduces your risk of Alzheimer's. So that's a plug for just getting that blood pressure strap, um, cuff, putting your arm, checking regularly, staying active, like we said, reducing or eliminating alcohol, right? Whatever uh-huh. works best for your, you know, situation. But just being mindful because, unfortunately, it's it is fortunately it's preventable. But there are people who do everything right and unfortunately still come down are diagnosed with this horrible you- illness. My guest is Dr. Tomi Mitchell, medical doctor in wellness and performance, empowering people to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Mitchell. We're talking about all of the uh, latest research studies that have come out recently to help you improve your health. And basically, that is what this show is about. We try to inform you, give you bits of information. Maybe you want to take something that you hear and do a little bit more research into it or speak to your doctor about it. So that is my job here. And uh, 
hopefully there are some benefits to you. Um, so I was delighted, Dr. Mitchell, to see this particular research study about yeah. hydration because I'm, it is one of the recommendations as a nurse continence advisor that I give to my patients for bladder health because dilute urine is less irritating to the bladder than concentrated urine. So drinking an adequate amount of water has more benefits than just the reduction of the irritability in the bladder. What is the other major benefit that this study showed that water might do? Well, water might be the fountain of youth, right? Like literally, um, drinking enough water has associated with dying later, right? Like you live longer if you drink enough water. So uh-huh. that is, that's huge. Exactly. It can slow down that aging process. I mean, there are so many mm-hmm. products on the market that make these false claims that they can, mm-hmm. you know, slow down the aging process, make you younger, make you look younger, make you be younger. But it turns out that something that has been in our kitchens and bathrooms <laughs> for a long time mm-hmm. coming out of a tap is the fountain of youth, as as we say. it's um, And that slowing down that aging process is a major challenge for preventive medicine. I'm actually very happy. Um, I have been drinking a lot of water, not for the aging process, although that's, thank, I'm very happy about that. But because I had kidney stones five years ago, knock on wood, <laughs> coming yeah. up in April, I was hospitalized for eight nights in the special care yeah. observation unit. And I was advised to drink 10 to 12 cups of water a day. And you can bet I do that every single day. So tell me a little yeah. bit about this study. We only have a couple of minutes left. Um, what, how did they do this study and why is it a good one? Well, it, they were able to have a large number of people in the study and they were to look back and basically say that there's a correlation between adequate water intake and salt level. Okay, When our salt levels are high, sodium, um, it suggests that we're not getting enough water. So they kind of said, okay, the sweet spot is in the middle, right? As in most things, too high sodium, you're not getting enough water water your sodium salt being too low there are probably diseases that you have that are contributing to that low sodium so getting that um, that water is critical like you mentioned your you know 10 12 cups i like a rule of thumb is like take your weight in pounds and take between half an ounce to one ounce per pound of weight so if you're a 150 pound person it's about 150 pounds 150 ounces or half of that Right, it's water is important. Most of us don't drink enough, and when you talk about um, urination and stress incontinence, your pee should be clear. Enough of this orange, dark orange urine, unless it's medications that are making your urine dark. It should be very clear, light colored. That's exactly a great eyeball. Yeah. And this study was, they used health data collected over 30 years from 11,255 black and white adults from the Atherosclerosis Risk Community Study, or the ARIC. Um, so it, it is a broad um, yeah, group big. of people. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a well, um, you know, I'm certain that it has some downsides and, and shows that, um, you know, there's, this is potential benefits of improved hydration and reductions in long-term health outcomes, including mortality. But I'm sure that, you know, more research needs to be done. Um, But it it was a very good study done out of Harvard and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. So anyway, Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much for joining me on the program. It's time for The Bedroom Bulletin. 
Welcome to the final strokes of the Sunday Night Health Show. This is the time of night you go to bed with me. You might be going to bed with your partner, and there could be issues in the bedroom, as you have heard a number of them discussed on this show over the past decade or so. Um, But tonight I want to talk about one that is not talked about all too often, and that is not always associated with a natural transition in life for people, the menopause. Kim Vopney is a pelvic health professional known as the Vagina Coach. She uses her personal experience to help others prevent and overcome pelvic floor dysfunction, such as urinary incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse. She joins me on the line. Good evening, Kim. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Good. Thank you so much for joining me, and Happy New Year to you. You too. Happy, happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, you never know what the new year is going to bring. But for many <laughs> women, it's going to bring on perimenopause or menopause or postmenopause. Um, mm-hmm. And we know about hot flashes and night sweats and heart palpitations and low energy and weight gain, especially around the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, but one that is little talked about, but you talk about it um, on your Instagram uh, quite often and through all of your talks and your engagements, um, vaginal health. You're known as mm-hmm. the vagina coach mm-hmm. and, um, you know, to bring attention to that area <laughs> because oftentimes women experience changes in their vaginal tissues, in their vulva at that time of mm-hmm. life and, and at other times of life as well um, when they're on the oral contraceptive pill or pregnancy, postpartum, perimenopause. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't really talk about this too much, and that's mm-hmm. that vaginal dryness, which can lead to sexual pain. Right. So let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah, it deserves it deserves a voice. And the thankfully, you know, menopause, I, I say, is having a bit of a, mo- a moment right now in that it's getting a lot more coverage. And indirectly, that means there's a little bit more conversation also happening around pelvic health and uh, the umbrella term genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which it was replacing vaginal atrophy as the term that used to be used. And it sort of encompasses things like vaginal dryness, painful sex, incontinence, organ prolapse. So there's a bunch of things that fall under that umbrella, which I, I, I'm not sure I'm, I, I love the term yet, <laughs> but at least it's opening up that conversation. And at least, again, it's bringing some attention to the pelvic health concerns that sometimes have been a problem for people along the way. But once they reach that, you know, that that one day of menopause and start to move beyond that, those symptoms that they were sort of maybe more easily able to put up with are now getting a little bit more difficult, more challenging, more interruptive of their daily living. And and many people still don't know that there's something that they can do about it, that it's very treatable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I happen to like genitourinary syndrome of menopause because GSM, uh, which is the shortened term is GSM, yeah. Um, yeah. but which is easier to say. I mean, the other's yeah. a bit of a mouthful, but it does actually <laughs> yeah. describe that, that this also affects the urinary tract as well. So right. when estrogen receptors decrease in the urinary genital tract, you may have leakage of urine, you may have vaginal dryness, you may have painful sex, you, you have less elastic vaginal tissues, you may have changes in the vulva. 
Um, yeah. And so it does kind of give it a little bit more, although it doesn't really include the vulva, but um, mm-hmm. it does give it a broader, um, you know, it's a broader term so that mm-hmm. people might have a better understanding of, of the condition. Um, yeah. And because you know, it's is, being, it, is it a syndrome? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and because at least it's, it, because there is a label and because menopause is being talked about and because now it's being more, uh, you know, healthcare providers are learning more than at least that is an open, an opening, so to speak, to that conversation that wasn't necessarily happening before. And, and you know, many women don't bring that subject up to their doctors. Uh, one of the reasons, or their healthcare providers, um, one of the reasons is that they, they're afraid, afraid to. Um, they fear that it's cancer and they don't want to find out that they mm-hmm. have, that they might have cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, for a, a number of reasons, or they don't associate it with, um, perimenopause or, or menopause or, or even postmenopause or, or yeah. they just, you know, they may not they have any other normal. symptoms of menopause. Yeah. They think it's yeah. to be expected. Um, yeah. and you know, they think, or they just shut the door, um, mm-hmm. on sex. And so this also is related to pelvic organ prolapse, um, which Mm -hmm. I deal with. I see patients with that and, Mm -hmm. um, and also treat patients with that. Um, but people don't realize the importance of moisturization of the vaginal tissues. And so that's another, Mm -hmm. that's actually preventive health. Um, and, and there are so many treatments. Uh, what are some of the treatments that you're aware of? Yeah, the prolapse is, is actually, when you look statistically, is more common than incontinence, than stress urinary incontinence. And yet we, we all have heard about and we see the pad companies marketing to us about incontinence, but there's no conversations happening around prolapse. And it can often be a much heavy, heavier mental load dealing with a prolapse diagnosis. It sidelines people and people are then a you know, ashamed they don't want anybody to look there. Some, as you mentioned earlier, some people think it's cancer and it really starts to interrupt things, uh, all aspects of life, including intimate uh, relationships. And again, so many things are available to us for treatment that we just don't even know about and even less known about than treatments or, or help for incontinence. So one, you mentioned vaginal moisturizers, um, and you know, obviously, lubricant during sex, vaginal moisturizer as a preventive measure. The um, potentially vaginal estrogen, I think, is very, very helpful. Specific exercise. So there's one technique. People have heard of Kegel exercises, and they can play a role. But the one technique that has been the most powerful, in my opinion, both in my own personal body and also that of my clients that I work with, is called hypopressives. Hypopressive means low pressure. It's also called low pressure fitness. And it is a series of poses that don't contribute to a lot of increases in intra-abdominal pressure. And then you add a specific breathing technique to it with a breath hold. And you create sort of a suction or like an abdominal vacuum that helps uh, kind of reposition the, the organs that have maybe shifted out of their optimal position. So it's a super, super powerful technique that not very many people know about. Uh, and how exactly, um, you know, how, what is the, you know, how, where did it originate from? There was a physiotherapist in, uh, in Europe, and his name was Dr. Marcel Cafrez, and he was 
not typically when, when you see a pelvic floor physical therapist, they don't typically use speculums. But in this case, he was using a speculum to evaluate a patient who had a prolapse. And when he went to insert the pro, the speculum, there was a the, the patient sort of had a bit of a startle and there was a bit of a retraction in the prolapse. And he thought, you know, he was curious to say what actually caused that retraction and could we repeat that? So that was how it was actually sort of first planted as an idea and then he turned it into a fitness technique so essentially once you exhale all of your air if you were to close off your glottis similar to as if you were going to go underwater uh, you hold your breath when you go underwater you close off the glottis but if you then try to take a breath in without air coming into the body there's an expansion of the ribs that happens and because there's no air coming in it changes the pressure and it actually creates sort of like a, an inward, upward motion of the abdominal wall. And there's a ligament that attaches at the back of our belly button on the inside of us to the bladder. And when there, when you move into this stomach vacuum, there's a, a sort of a drawing up of that ligament, which also then helps lift the bladder. And it can also, because of the position of the uterus, if a person still has one, which some people post-menopause do not have their uterus anymore, but for those that do, it can also influence the, uh, the, the uh, uterus as well. And done over time, it can help improve by a stage potentially. Some people even reverse their prolapse altogether. And it also, especially in combination with a Kegel-type practice, can really help uh, train, kind of retrain the involuntary aspect of our core. Kegels are voluntary, hypopressives are involuntary, and the two together make a really powerful combination. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is for overall vaginal health, hypopressives. Well, it, it, it's for way more than that even. It's, it's for posture. It I can actually, be for pain. It could be, yeah. Yeah, reducing the waistline. You know, a lot of things that, yeah. you know, that occur in, in menopause, like, like um, postural, you know, like people extend, start to, um, you know, their posture starts to, they start to have more humps in their back, you know I mean? But that can be yeah. osteoporosis as well. Um, yeah. They start to get more, more aches and pain. So it can allegedly prevent back pain, um, you know, potentially decrease pressure and bloating in the abdominal cavity. Things slow down in, in the menopausal time. And, and so that may help. Yeah. So hypopressive well. so can help. Absolutely. Like even with, uh, with digestion, because of the, 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 influence of what's happening in the abdominal wall. If anybody struggles with constipation, it can really help with that as well. Um, and so it's an overall, it can be used for whether you have male or female anatomy, but it's really gained popularity, popularity because of the way that it has, uh, the improvements that people see specific to prolapse. Mm-hmm. And um, does, is this, uh, can they go online and, and be trained you know, patients go online or is that something you have been trained in and that you teach people? It is something that I've been trained in. I've been, uh, I would first receive training about 10 or so years ago now. And I do have some online programs available for people who want to learn online. I have a couple of videos on my YouTube channel. I, I do teach it online through individual one-on-one consultations as well. There's the odd person who would benefit from, an in-person evaluation. I think there's lots of mm-hmm. benefit to in-person, but obviously this day and age, there's less of that, that that happens. So it's definitely a technique you can learn online, either self-directed 
or one-on-one in a consultation with somebody like myself. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think that in person sometimes is, is the best way to go. I mean, these days we've gone a lot, of, uh, especially for something like this, um, mm-hmm. something that somebody needs to be trained for. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that we've, since the pandemic, a lot of people, a lot of things have gone virtual mm-hmm. um, and there's benefit to that as well. You know, reduction on the uh, carbon emissions for the environment mm-hmm. to parking, to mm-hmm. time, to you know, you never have to leave your house. Um, yep. You can stay in those expensive houses in Vancouver <laughs> and use them um, instead yeah. of having to run out to work all the time and to pay for them. But anyway, um, the the benefits of hypopressives um, are, you know, I mean, it sounds like this would benefit everybody from reducing stress to improving sleep, mm-hmm. prevention mm-hmm. or reduction of swollen legs, improving blood mm-hmm. flow, mm-hmm. pelvic discomfort, improving sexual function. That's a big interest for me, given my um, patient base, mm-hmm. uh, improving lung capacity, um, lung, back pain. How come we don't know more about this? Well, it 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 has been around in Europe for for many years it's been over 20 years and it's only been in north america for about 10 ish as i mentioned i took the first course that came to north america it was about 10 or so years ago now and it's been slow to be adopted in some way because they didn't have a lot of research behind it and a lot of uh, a lot of practitioners medical providers physiotherapists they they want the evidence to support what they are providing to their patients with with reason and so they have there, there is research to support it. It's just been slow to be published. Um, but myself... Ha- has any be- been published? Yes, there has been published research on it. And okay. I would say, though, at the time, dealing with my own... So I had a stage 2 uterine prolapse. I also had a stage 2 rectocele, where the rectum bulb is in the vagina. And mm-hmm. I, like many people that experience that diagnosis and have the constant nagging symptoms, I was willing to try anything that could possibly help. So even if I knew of these stories anecdotally of people who had improved or reversed their prolapse, I was trying it. And so we, that first course, the group of us, there was probably, I can't remember exactly, 15 or so, a blend of um, fitness professionals and physiotherapists all working in pelvic health. And we went in with a an open mind, but also a little bit of skepticism about this technique that we had only really seen that looked very odd. And we came away having felt it in our own bodies and then starting to implement it with, with huge excitement because it was the first thing that was actually like changing things for people and giving people hope rather than just, well, you're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to do this. You're just going to have to maintain it. Hopefully it doesn't get worse, but at some point it probably will. And so it, it really deflated people. And this technique came along and totally transformed that. And especially even, well, especially with prolapse, but definitely with pain as well. So a lot of the pain people were thinking, you know, that it looks like it could potentially exacerbate, but with open-minded patients as well, they were trying this and people who had pelvic pain we're experiencing a down regulation in their their sort of overactivity of the of the tone, and uh, it's super super helpful for hypertonicity in the pelvic floor, pelvic pain syndromes, constipation, as I mentioned. Um, so the, the benefits are way beyond just prolapse, but that's the one that most people know it for and use it for. I see. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um, no. I mean, it, it's a conservative measure. It's it's exercise mm-hmm. basically. 
Um, mm-hmm. It does mention, I'm doing, I'm just reading about it now, to be honest mm-hmm. with you, um, quickly, yep. just reviewing it. Um, that it, it does mention doing some of the exercises with apnea, which means without breathing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yep. um, and, you know, understanding apnea, how you know you're, you're not breathing the correct way. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> correctly, but you know what, this is something I think I'm going to try. I have to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't have any of the problems listed, full disclosure here, but who can't sleep better? Who doesn't want to lose a bit more in the middle, you know? And um, it says to do it three times a week for six, three times a week for six weeks. So um, I think I'll try this, Kim, and I think I'll have you back on the show and uh, report back into you. I'm going to need the training on it, though. (laughs) Yes, I'd be happy to Online. Yeah. And you know what? I even though I don't have a prolapse anymore, I still do it religiously like four at the very minimum four times a week it, it is like moving meditation for me i absolutely love the practice fantastic and well you're in fabulous shape anyway well really kim i appreciate you coming on the show and talking about this um thanks for having yeah, me it was- Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.